You're listening to Bead, History for the Church, a conversation with Drs. Michael A.G. Haken and Mike Pullman. Dr. Haken serves as the Chair and Professor of Church History at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he is on the core faculty of Heritage Theological Seminary in Cambridge, Ontario. Dr. Pullman is Associate Professor of Practical Theology and the Chair of the Department of the Ministry and Proclamation at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's the author of Broadcasting the Faith, Radio and Theology in America, 1920 to 1950. Join us now as we seek to see what God has done in the history of his people. In his autobiography entitled An Authentic Narrative, published shortly after his 39th birthday in 1764, John Newton explains the value his life has for the general reader. And I quote, Concerning the patience and long-suffering of God, the wonderful intervention of his providence in favor of an unworthy sinner, the power of his grace in softening the hardest heart, and the riches of his mercy in pardoning the most enormous and aggravated transgressions, in these respects, I know no case more extraordinary than my own. End quote. See, the narrative of his life for Newton was an exercise in doxology. Newton saw his life, in his own words, as, quote, a remarkable display of God's sovereign, efficacious grace. This understanding led him to write hymns that many of us are familiar with that have words like, Sovereign grace has power alone to subdue a heart of stone. And the moment grace is felt, then the hardest heart will melt. And most famously, you must know these words, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. But even as Newton is perhaps most known for his hymns, he should also be known for his letters. Those most familiar with Newton seem to agree that letter writing was his greatest gift, earning him the reputation as the great spiritual director of souls through the post. Well, Michael, it's great to be with you to talk about John Newton, someone you and I both admire greatly. Well, it certainly wasn't uncommon to write letters in the 18th century uh, in England, but John Newton strikes me as an uncommon letter writer. What makes his letters so significant in the history of the church? Yes, as you say, uh, Newton is <clears throat> probably best known uh, to those who have studied his writing or his life uh, as uh, excelling as a spiritual mentor through the medium of the letter. And um, there is, uh, there's a real shift that goes on between the 17th and 18th century. Uh, letters uh, become uh, easier to read in some ways. The kind of prose that characterized Puritan authors like Owen and Baxter uh, is simplified in many ways. The the structure of sentences, the the way in which sentences were constructed, I think to some degree with by writers in the 17th and earlier 17th century and earlier with kind of a Latin model in mind where you have long sentences, main verbs at the end of the sentence and so on. And uh, the more modern way of writing um, shorter sentences, more atomic sentences really begins in the 18th century. And so the uh, 18th century then 
uh, letter writing um, had the advantage of being easier to read. And uh, Newton uh, is part of that world. Um, Michael, that's fascinating. Re real quick. So the, the actual prose changed. I mean, sentences were shortened. So in the 18th century, this is new to me, we actually had a different style of writing that was more conducive to correspondence. Sounds yeah, it is. Yeah, it, it makes correspondence easier to read in 18th century authors. And if, um, I, I mean, I've spent a lot of time reading 17th and 18th century prose. And moving from the 18th to the 17th, from the 18th, 17th century to the 18th century is, it, it's, there is significant difference between the, the difficulty of the prose for an average reader and um, and then the growth in literacy in the 18th century. So Richard Greenham, now this is going back to the 16th century, but the Richard Greenham, when he went to his parish in Dry Drayton in the 1570s, um, there was not one woman in that parish that could read uh, or write. About 100, later, 100 years later, literacy might be 30% maximum. Well, this has increased a lot more in the 18th century. So um, the 18th century, not only is there a shift in prose, but also there's a growth in literacy. And uh, the letter becomes a key way of, of uniting families, uniting businesses, but also the network of what God was doing in revival. Um, about 30 years ago, there was a fabulous article written by a historian named Susan O'Brien, which talks about the network of evangelicals uh, on both sides of the Atlantic, in which they maintained by the medium of the letter. So this letter writing network, and she, she mostly focused on the 1730s, 1740s with people like Whitfield and um, um, John Erskine. Uh, Etc. on one side of the Atlantic, the British side, and then people like uh, Jonathan Edwards, uh, Samuel Davies, etc. on the other side. If she had uh, continued her research into the latter half of the 18th century, uh, John Newton would certainly have been a key figure uh, to have. Uh, he's he's a he's a vehicle of of maintaining spiritual vitality between a, a variety of authors. Um, he has Scottish correspondence. Um, in England, he's got Baptist and um, Anglican, Methodist, um, Calvinistic Methodist in Wales. Um, he really is very Catholic in a good sense in his, uh, the breadth of his, the correspondence to whom he writes. Well, for example, we know as an Anglican, he had an, an over three decade correspondence with a Baptist. I mean, John Ryland, right? So to your point, it wasn't just an Anglican to a Baptist, but he spread it well beyond Baptist circles. But that's striking to me. Yeah, especially in a day in which, um, you know, 30 years prior, if you go back to the 1740s, 1750s, Baptists, particular Baptists, Calvinistic Baptists, basically wanted little to do with the Anglican Church and even less to do with people associated with the revival like Whitfield. The Wesleys were beyond the pale. They're, they were Arminian in their minds, uh, and rightly, I mean, they were Arminian theologically, but they were beyond the pale in terms of, you know, kind of engaging in correspondence with them. You could engage in controversial attacks on them, but 
not correspondence. And then even people like Whitfield, Whitfield, you know, claimed to be a Calvinist, but many of the particular Baptists felt he, you know, he might have been a Calvinist in print, but when he preached, he sounded sure like an Arminian. And they talked, they talked about his Arminian accent. So uh, a lot of Baptists, you know, didn't want much to do with the Anglican Church. After all, the Anglican Church had persecuted Baptists, you know, as 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 late as the 1680s, and even in 1714, on the death of Queen Anne, there was a bill that was about to be passed that would have prevented any Baptist from being a schoolmaster, from having any sort of uh, context in which they could teach others, uh, primary, secondary, or even one of the dissenting academies that were formed as an option instead of the universities. And in the providence of God, the Queen died on the day that the bill was to be signed into effect, uh, which the Baptists and Congregationalists and Presbyterians saw as a distinct uh, providence. So that's 1714 in the covenant of um, Wharton Baptist Church in the 1720s when they renewed the covenant to renew the church. Uh, one, of the, one, of the, one of the articles specified that if persecution came, they were to cleave to one another and not to give way to the pressure of the state to abandon the church. And for many of these people, that was a that was not just something theoretical, but their parents had gone through it. They could remember maybe their parents going through it. And as as recently as 1714, as I said, it was a reality. And then suddenly now in the late, you know, in the 1750s, 60s and 70s, here's John Newton corresponding with Baptists, and they're corresponding with him. And Newton, Newton is a very Newton is a very key figure because he's a Calvinist, um, so he's acceptable to the Baptists in that sense. But um, he is um, he, he's very appreciative of Baptists, like uh, as you mentioned that collection of letters to John Ryland Jr. that has been edited, it's been published as Wise Counsel, a book called Wise Counsel, edited by Grant Gordon, yeah, by Banner of Truth, yeah, yeah. But I want to circle back. How how do we explain Newton's appeal? You talk about his Catholicity. You know how he can go beyond uh, his influence in letter writing. Uh, wh- what do we attribute that to? It, would it be anachronistic to call him the uh, an evangelical no. Calvinist? No, that's, his evangelical that's, Calvinism. Yeah, I think maybe his, that was the um, appeal. <clears throat> that's a very appropriate description of him. Evangelical is a term that well, it goes back to the 1520s, but in the term way we use it. Um, it, it's mm-hmm. very much um, apropos to describe Newton as an early classical evangelical. Um, I, I think I think Newton Newton is just a very wise individual. He's very balanced. Um, you know, it was said by I'm, I, I was trying to remember this quote, and I it might be Charles Simeon, but I think it's Newton, where Newton said I th- I think Newton said. You know, I'm a Calvinist, but like I like my Calvinism like my sugar in my tea. You know, it's mixed all through the tea. It's not just a, a lump dropped at the bottom, but it's mixed in the tea. And <laughs> which means his whole life is permeated by the sense of the sovereignty of God and the providence of God and the glory of God mm. as the end of life. But he's not he's not um, he, he was very balanced. He, he, he knew the dangers of uh, hyper-Calvinism um, and the way that some hyper-Calvinists verged on antinomianism. Um, Which, of course, was very common in his day. 
right? So as he's streaming with, uh, I guess, you know, Benjamin Wall and John Gill and them were, were predated him, but the particular Baptists uh, and the call high Calvinism or hyper Calvinism uh, was very much an issue in his time. Right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, yeah, a guy like Gill, uh, uh, John Gill and John Brine, for all that, you know, I would admire them. They did veer towards uh, a high Calvinism, um, which um, diminished the free, well, either diminished or negated the free offer of the gospel in the hands of much lesser men, Brian and Gill could never be accused of this, led to antinomianism uh, because of the emphasis on eternal justification. Um, and uh, Newton, Newton is just a very balanced, wise individual. And the, the, his letter writing really is his great strength. We, we remember him, as you rightly pointed out at the beginning, you know, for his hymns, um, Amazing Grace being probably the chief one. Um, but in his day, uh, he was just as well remembered, just as known for his for his hymn uh, for his letter writing. He was never well, so much so. Go ahead, Michael. Yeah, I was just going to add one. He was never regarded as one of the great preachers of the day. Now, I heard he's been. A, I, I've heard him referred to as a very ordinary yeah. or simple preacher. You know, yeah, you know, he wasn't known for his great oratory or uh, powerful sermons. Yeah, I mean at Olney, where he his first uh, uh, parish, where he was the curate in charge, um, between uh, seventeen sixty five and uh, seventeen eighty, um, he would have had a congregation of about a thousand. Which is, that's bigger than I thought. I, d I didn't realize it was that. Yeah, big. it would have wow. been it would have been upwards of a thousand. The town of Olney had about three thousand. There were about a thousand went to his church. Thousand went to the Congregationalist Church, and about a thousand ended up going to the Baptist Church, where John Sutcliffe was for about forty years. But um, he wasn't the greatest of preachers, but uh, just tremendous wisdom in his everyday uh, discourse, in person and through the through the post. Michael, let's for our listeners, let's let's really place Newton. I mean, we we might assume everybody knows uh, the era we're talking about, and we've alluded to a number of the dates. But give us a brief, if you wouldn't mind, biography of John Newton. Uh, you know, what kind of dates, born, death, mm -hmm. uh, what was going on? A little bit about his ministry, which you've already started. Yeah, born in 1725, he would uh, live till 1807. So. Much of the 18th century, um, a very uh, tumultuous revolutionary era. Um, his life saw the the uh, Great Awakening uh, beginning in the 1730s, 1740s, of which he becomes a key part. Uh, various wars in which Britain was was involved, the uh, rebellion of Brawny Prince Charlie, the Seven Years' War. In which is known as the French and Indian War on this side of the Atlantic, um, which led to the hegemony, hegemony of the or hegemony of the British uh, Empire over North America, then the American Revolution, the French Revolution, uh, the Napoleonic Wars. He dies in the middle of the Napoleonic Wars. So it's just a very, very what a time to live. Yeah. I mean, the things he he lived through. And of course, in his correspondence, you talk about balance, but you also talk about the breadth of things he talked about. 
his letters, for example, in that wonderful collection uh, with his correspondence uh, with, with uh, uh, John Ryland, he'll talk about the French Revolution, talked about the American Revolution. He'll talk about the slave trade. He'll talk about a letter maybe we'll come back to later. I'd love to share a little bit about it. Uh, smallpox, vaccinations, well, inoculation, as it was called then. And, and I mean, he was commenting on everything and, and living through such a, uh, a time, awakenings, uh, but anyway, I interrupt, but you're right. Yeah. What a time. Yeah, to so live. It's, a, it's a very tumultuous revolutionary era, the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. Um, and then, you know, uh, a variety of other massive changes in his world. Um, the Enlightenment, uh, the Age of Reason. Uh, also, as, as I said, the Age of, Age of Revival. Um, his mother was a godly woman, um, but sadly she dies when he's very young. And, Tuberculosis, yeah, wasn't it? I think it was. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, he goes to sea with his father, who was a, a merchant marine captain. And uh, sailors can be rough men of vulgar speech and vulgar habits. Um, certainly then, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not an expert to comment on what they might be like now, but they were then. And Newton gets caught up in that world. By the time he's in his mid-teens, he's an atheist, he's mocking Christians and uh, would later look back with deep shame on what he said about Christ and the Bible. And um, probably the, the descent of his life is typified by the fact that he ends up as a slave, um, enslaved by a European uh, living uh, on the Gold Coast in West Africa, what is now Nigeria, Ghana, that area. And... Um, his, Isn't that because he left the, the British Navy? Yeah, he did. Uh, right? I mean, he he went kind of AWOL. In, uh, and well, in fact, uh, one of his, I think at that point, his captain was so fed up with him because he was he was a disobedient, <laughs> rebellious individual. He make, he'd make songs about the captain. The captain basically sold him, basically chucked him, chucked him off to this, this individual whose wife enslaved. She was African. His wife enslaved him. And um, he disappears from the view of his family and his friends in England. And his father, his father puts out a kind of a distress signal to any naval captain who, who is sailing in that part of the world. If, if they, they hear about Newton, please uh, bring him news. And uh, Newton's rescued. But on the, on the, the way back to England, a, a storm um, envelops the ship. And... <clears throat> Uh, Newton finds himself, the storm is so bad, that the ship is being deluged with wave after wave. Um, some of these storms, you know, they're like roller coasters. From the crest of the wave to the trough could be anywhere from 40 to 80 feet. So the ship would crest and then down 40, 40 to 80 feet and then up again. And just horrifying. I mean, these wooden ships... And um, uh, Newton cries out something to the effect that uh, they're going down if God doesn't act. And he, th he suddenly begins to reflect that he's actually prayed a prayer. And the sea becomes becalmed. And it doesn't sink. Hmm. And it awakens in him the realization that he's, he's actually prayed and it hmm. seems as god has answered 
And I've heard through through stories that something of the prayer included have mercy. I mean, just a very simple cry mm-hmm. for mercy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and that does mark, I mean, historically speaking, his conversion. I mean, that's where he would when well, it's, it's, it. it's the it's the turning point in which he realizes that there there is a God and yeah. um he, he he meets a man named Alexander Clooney on one of the islands, uh, I think it's St. Kitts, uh, who is a godly evangelical. And he owes enormous amount to this man who mentors him. And um, he get, eventually gets back to England. Um, what's really kind of kept him going in much of this period, even when when he was a, a, a god, on, he was a godless wretch, was his love for the woman who became his wife, whom he had met when he was about 15, 16. Uh, so he gets back to England. Um, by this point now, he's solidly converted, ends up getting married. but uh, And they live in Liverpool. Uh, and for at least two trips, he's, he's a slave ship captain. And uh, he's writing his, he, you know, he's above deck or in his ship captain's, quarters uh praying that god would give them a safe voyage and below deck are slaves africans who have been enslaved um he, he would later admit uh, i never questioned it everybody thought it was a good employment hmm. and it makes you wonder about what sins are we committing in our lives that we have no idea just have yeah. no idea you know, it's very easy to look back in hindsight and say you know what wh- why wasn't this so obvious to him? And I, I, I to be honest, I, I find it difficult to believe why, why it wasn't obvious, but it wasn't obvious. Right. It wasn't obvious to it him wasn't. and to many others. Yeah, it would become obvious, but but it t- it took time. There was a progress of learning yep. uh, for Newton, as we talk about Newton. Uh, and Newton would become a key figure in the uh, fight against the slave trade because he could give personal, personal evidence uh, to one of the men he mentored, William Wilberforce, about mm-hmm. what it was like mm-hmm. uh, to to be on one of these ships and the 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 iniquity of of it all. He wrote he wrote pamphlets to describe in vivid detail what he had seen, uh, and I found that interesting. He even one of his letters to Ryland was explaining to him that he was about done writing in about ten days. It was going to mm-hmm. to be available, and I think he said, "I'll be charging a shilling." Like one show. Yeah, I don't know what it was. One of my but to to do. Yeah. Go ahead. Now, one of my close friends um, has a has his personal copy of the debates in the House of Commons when they were debating wow. when they were debating the uh, the 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 fi- in the final years of the the uh, slave trade, um, and they were published. Newton annotated them. And wow. a number of years ago, my friend, my friend wanted to buy a 16, 1612 KJV, which he had seen for sale in an antiquarian bookstore at the, in the bottom of the Trump Tower. And he called me and he said it was being advertised for about 60,000 US. Around two, I was going to ask how much. Wow. Yeah, about uh, this is around 2000. And, uh, this is just after 9-11. And so... Um, he uh, he said, "Do you think that's a good price?" I said, "I haven't got a clue." So, but I, <laughs> I, 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 I do have a. I had an acquaintance and still do who had a 
a friend who was an antiquarian bookseller in Philadelphia. So I ended up calling him and I said, do you think this is a good price? He said, ah, no, it's a bad price. He said, I, I actually sell to them. I'll, I'll give it to your friend for 30000 So Half the price. Half the price. Wow. So uh, my friend said, you got to come with me. So he booked an airplane flight and we went down. I, I don't have time on the program to, today. I mean, it was an unforgettable day. I mean, he showed me wow. personal letters of John Wesley that he had and, it was just incredible. I ended up buying a book of sermons by James Dore, the 18th century particular Baptist from London. But anyway, uh, so my friend bought the $30,000 uh, KJV. He also bought John Newton's personal copy of Hansard, the actual parliamentary debates in which he annotated. And it is fascinating what he would say when people oh, defended wow. the slave trade. He'd say, oh, horror upon horrors. How can they do this? And it's absolutely incredible. And so Newton becomes a key figure in the um, the fight against the slave trade. Now, what prevents him going to sea is he has a stroke at the age of 27. Uh, 27. Mm-hmm. How debilitating was that for him? Not, I, not too. I mean, he obviously continued. No, okay. Yeah, not too debilitating, but obviously providential mm-hmm. because he couldn't go he couldn't go to sea again as a naval captain. And uh, must have maybe it might have affected his um, sense of vertigo. But um, and he becomes a he becomes a tide surveyor in Liverpool, the guy who figures out the times of the tides for for the ships. And it was there that he heard Whitfield preach. He heard Wesley preach. He started keeping a diary. That diary was lost for about 150 years, till my friend Grant Gordon found it in a li- in a in a library in New York. Uh, nobody had no idea where this this particular library was, and it's filled with, New, with Newton's early early notes on Whitfield and Wesley sermons. Uh, Grant uh, Gordon has published a book on the Whitfield, and he's in a process of publishing the book on the Wesley sermons. What a treasure trove! I noticed he talks about all the things he found as he was looking for correspondence. Uh, just Newton's correspondence. And he stumbled upon so many things in libraries on either side of the Atlantic. I mean, whether it was Princeton, I think it was, uh, well, New, maybe it, yeah, I don't Princeton, know, somewhere. Yeah, Princeton, that, Yale. Princeton, New, Yale. That was the other I was thinking of. And then New York, maybe public library. Uh, and then, of course, things over across the pond. But he really fell into a lot of things that had yet to be discovered, or at least had been dormant for a long time. Yeah, like the Ryland letters. John Ryland was a particular Baptist, mm-hmm. a Calvinistic Baptist in England. And he was the principal of Bristol Baptist College from 1793 to 1825. And the letters to Newton um, had sat there. Newton's letters to him had sat there for about 175 years. And sadly, I guess we don't have any of Ryland's letters to him. We can surmise no. a lot of what he might have written, but we don't have the no, other side. I don't think we have any of the other side. But what's interesting about that, maybe we can talk about that relationship a little bit, Michael. I find this fascinating. If I recall, John Newton, older by 25 years, uh, John Ryland, if you recall this relationship. And as we mentioned earlier, a relationship that spanned... I think the correspondence spans four decades, but I think it was about a 31-year friendship that they nurtured primarily through correspondence, not to say they didn't see each other in person, because I know they did, but it was primarily through correspondence. Uh, 
What do you make of that in terms of nurturing a friendship? What does that say about about friendship, about Newton, uh, the age difference? I mean, what do we make of all this? What can we yeah, learn from I, it? I, I think the critic, one of the critical things is the importance of older Christians building friendships yep. with younger believers. Pouring into this young pastor, he did. Yeah. Yep. Um, and the young, the young Newton, the young Ryland really needed that help. Now, Ryland had a very godly father, John Ryland Sr., John Collett Ryland. But the senior Ryland was completely opposite in temperament than the younger Ryland. The younger Ryland was uh, an introvert. Um, he was quiet, reserved, did not like to speak about himself. The older Ryland was, John Collett Ryland, was just an ebullient individual, just bubbling over with ideas and book projects and uh, had a hard time retaining, re restraining himself when he was passionate about something. And there's probably a dozen or so anecdotes um, that illustrate that. One of, one of the great ones is he, uh, the, the older Ryland struck up a friendship with um, a pastor named William Jay, congregationalist, who was in Bath. And uh, Jay, Jay was with the, uh, the older Ryland in London on one occasion. And he noticed the older Ryland was reading a newspaper at this one point, and suddenly Ryland jumps up, drops the newspaper, and begins to pace up and down the room furiously for about five minutes, and finally lets out this blood-curdling curse, uh, which uh, Jay Jay said, I, "I can't even repeat it in print. It's it was so it was so it was so bad." And uh, Ryland had read uh, read in a, an American newspaper. Uh, an advertisement for for buying a slave, and he hated slavery to the pit of his being, and he 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 just let out this vile, violent curse about being goddamn all slave traders. But it was it, the language was so the language was so over the, colorful, colorful. That's the word I want. <laughs> colorful, it was and, vibrant. Uh, yeah, vibrant Vivid. and colorful. That William J. said, I, I can't even put it in print. Um, of course, it's, and this is senior. This, this is Ryland. This senior. is Ryland senior, and of course, it's yeah. it's Ryland senior who rebukes William Carey. You know, when Carey suggested okay. let's go overseas and do missions, the older Ryland says, "Young man, sit down. When God wants to convert the heathen, he'll do it without your help of mine." And that's the older Ryland, and he, he's just a yes. He's just he's just out front. Well, the younger Ryland found him an embarrassment. And, His own dad. Yeah. yeah. He, he, and he, some of the letters in Wise Council, he writes to Newton. He says, what am I going to do with him? Yeah. <laughs> he says he's, he's yeah. an embarrassment sometimes in the pulpit. And, you know, and, yeah. and Newton tells him, you know, you just have to let him be. Because if you start to try to rebuke your own father, I mean, it, it's shameful trying to rebuke an older man and you have to treat him with love and care. And he's your father. And he said, mm -hmm. I'm quite sure that, you know, these traits will be washed off when he gets to heaven. And, um, but you can see why junior would migrate or gravitate toward John Newton. Yeah. Because uh, yeah, he, he, yeah, the two of them were so opposite him and his father and his father, I don't think he ever understood him. So and then his father gets himself into all kinds of financial difficulties. He he was always printing more books than he could sell, 
I, I've got this picture of the, the older Ryland's house being filled with, with editions of books that he printed that he couldn't sell. I mean, he printed tons of books and he gets himself into debt. See, it's an author's nightmare. It is. We, we yeah. print more books than we can sell. And he, yeah. he has to leave the ministry. Nothing you know anything about, though. You know nothing no, about No, I don't know anything about that. <laughs> and he has, to, he has to leave the ministry because he's he's got himself financially embarrassed. And the younger Ryland says, what am I going to do with the poor man? Yeah. And enter Newton, the wise counselor. Exactly. You know, almost 30 years older than him, like a father, though they... In the correspondence, it's 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 friend, dear friend, brother, and yet it was in many ways a father son relationship. Uh, that's the because way, yeah, of the age difference. That's the way it begins. Mm -hmm. But you know, by the time that you know Newton, the last probably 10, 12 years of their correspondence, it's two friends. Yeah, I think he closes his last letter, at least that I know of, to uh, Ryland with. Uh, your affectionate brother, John Newton. So, um, yeah, incredible, incredible story, that relationship. And and uh, uh, I can see why uh, a John Ryland Jr. would migrate or, gravi forgive me, gravitate toward a, a wise counselor like John Newton, who I guess they met, he had invited him to Olney yeah. some years ago. So, yeah. and, and invite him out, stayed at his home, and from that's what started the relationship. Yeah, and I think at the time, I think... The younger Roland was sixteen, hmm. and he was he was moving in the orbit of hyper Calvinism. He actually published a book of poetry, which uh, the uh, Newton said you you really shouldn't have published that book. You're too young, you know. You're sixteen, seventeen years old, you know. You're too young to be talking about the deep truths of the Christian faith, you know. But he had a little of his dad in him at that moment. Yeah, right? probably. Um, <laughs> Probably one of the, you know, one of the great, I think the great letters, which I think is a lot of wisdom for us today, is that there was a, there was a man named William Huntington in London, who was, um, he was a hyper-Calvinist. He rejected the free offer of the gospel. He uh, was not technically a Baptist, but he was very influential in Baptist. He was a doctoral antinomian, if not an actual antinomian to some degree. But he was definitely a doctoral antinomian. And he got himself involved in a huge controversy with the elder Ryland. Um, because the elder Ryland was committed to the free offer of the gospel. And um, he, uh, he, wrote to, he wrote to Ryland and he said, I'm coming up to Northampton where you are. Could I, could I, could I preach from your pulpit? And the older Ryland said, absolutely not. You know, I mean... The uh, Huntington was the sort of man, if you crossed him, he would call you out in print and all kinds of vile epithets. So Huntington came to Northampton anyway. And uh, one of one of the Ryland's congregation opened his home to him. It caused a split, a minor split in the church. And hmm. uh, Ryland wrote a book against Huntington, you know, attacking him. And Huntington basically said, God will strike you dead. He basically, uh, a number of his enemies, he cursed that God would strike him dead. And wow. uh, he got into a fight with Caleb Evans, the principal of uh, Bristol Baptist College. When Evans died, uh, Huntington said, see there, yeah, it's proof that God, God struck him. 
And so did Newton get involved in this? So did some so yeah, so what Newton said, wrote a letter. Yeah, what 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 Ryland, the younger Ryland said, I can't I can't I can't, I can't let this go. I got I gotta write against, you know, he's attacking my dad and and Newton, right. Newton said basically you know, this is an Arkansas uh proverb, so uh, Newton didn't hear this, but basically uh you wrestle a pig in, in, in <laughs> you wrestle with a pig, the pig's gonna love it. And you'll get dirty and nothing else. <laughs> and that's all you'll accomplish. That's, what, dirty. that's basically what Newton told him. He says, don't give him the time of day and the satisfaction of trying to refute him in print. He said, just let him alone and he'll refute himself. Michael, how relevant is that wise counsel for many uh, people on social media today that all the, these young pastors would hear this counsel from a Newton? It's not worth your time. Uh, put the phone away. <laughs> put the smartphone away and do not tweet whatever you were just thinking. Uh, so very relevant uh, for our time. You know, I love the, the breadth of the letters when you, when you think about all the, the subjects that he covered. Uh, maybe I could give our listeners a, a little sample here. Uh, this was a letter that really moved me. He oftentimes, I, we'll talk about marriage. And remember with the age difference, you know, you remember Ryland reached out to, to, to John to say, you know, I think it was Betsy, his wife, was, he was going to be getting married. And basically, we can only guess, but it seems like based on Newton's letter, he had asked him, do you have any advice for me, you know, as I'm embarking on this new season of my life? And I found this really instructive. I won't read the whole letter, of course, but dropping down a couple paragraphs, he writes a very tight, concise sentence. And it reads, beware of idolatry. So this is marriage advice. And like, where are you going with this, John? And, and he says to young to, to John Ryland, beware of idolatry. And then he proceeds to talk about the love he's going to have for his wife, and it'll be this special love, and she will have it for him. But then he writes this, and so I'll quote, but there is a sense in which we must love God holy and only. To him, our love must be supreme and unrivaled. And so he's cautioning this young John, uh, Ryland, you're going to love your wife, but don't let even your spouse become an idol. Wise counsel, don't you think? Yes. Yeah, I think so. I think, uh, especially in, in our day when, and in their day as well, um, because of the way in which marriage was so lightly treated and frowned upon, and Christians wanted to to demonstrate the the what a godly marriage looked like, um, how dangerous it is to fall into that sort of idolatry where we put a creature in the place of God, even a good creature, yeah. uh, right. even in the best of institutions like marriage. Well, he even talk about that in the letter. He'll say God has given us, you know, all things to enjoy and. But he'll say that smile of creatures could never take the place of the smile of God. And I'm paraphrasing now, but uh, one other, you know, Michael, you said earlier some minutes ago, and, and I thought this was really uh, profound insight into Newton's letters. You talked about his evangelical Calvinism, uh, how the, the sovereignty of God, the supremacy of God just kind of, what, what was that, that sugar how, how'd you put that? Oh, yeah, yeah. I, 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 I want my Calvinism to be like uh, my, uh, to be sugar in my tea. 
Yeah. You know, it's spread, well, it's spread it, through the whole of it. That that really is seen in his letters. I, I hadn't heard that, uh, you know, analogy, but it, it really describes his letters. And you also mentioned balance. You do find such wonderful balance in, in Newton, in his correspondence. I had mentioned earlier, very relevant for our time. I think he was apparently asked by John Ryland uh, Jr. about inoculations for smallpox and wondering what John thought about that, uh, Newton, that is. And in this letter, tremendous balance. And I, I find this interesting. He basically said, I can env envision or imagine a scenario where it would be good and right for a Christian to be inoculated. But I could also imagine, obviously, a scenario where he or she didn't get inoculated for smallpox. And the, the Calvinism, if you will, is all over this letter, even as it's talking about something as practical in that day as, as smallpox and being inoculated for it. Let me read you a sample of this. He says, uh, this is letter 22 in that book you mentioned, Wise Counsel says, but if a person who fears the Lord should tell me something like this, and then he's imagining a quote. So if, if someone was to come to me and, and speak like this as a believer, I think I can do it in faith. I think I can take the inoculation in faith, looking upon it as a salutary expedient, which he and his providence has discovered, and which therefore appears my duty to have recourse to, so that my mind does not hesitate with respect to the, here it is, lawfulness of it, nor am I anxious about the event. And he goes on and says, uh, I do not know that I could offer a word by way of dissuasion, if somebody talked that way. But then he pivots, Michael, and this is what's so powerful, and I think I could guess what John Newton thinks about the inoculation, even as he's saying, I could imagine a scenario where it would be lawful uh, as a, for a Christian to take it. But then he says, uh, talks about uh, what if you had someone who talked like this? He says, I would support this if part of the contemplation of, of being inoculated sounded like this from a Christian. My times are in the Lord's hands. I am now in health, and I am not willing to bring upon myself a disorder, the consequence of which I cannot possibly foresee. If I am to have the smallpox, I believe he is the best judge of the season, and manner in which I shall be visited, so as may be the most for his glory and my own good. And therefore, I choose to wait his appointment and not to rush upon, uh, rush upon the possibility of danger without a call. A couple more sentences here. If the very hairs of my head are numbered, I have no reason to fear that, supposing I receive the smallpox in a natural way, I shall have a single pimple more than he sees expedient. I mean, and then he goes on, just talk about the, the how precise God's providence is and how we can rest in his care. And to be clear to our listeners, he goes on to say, I'm not going to run headlong into smallpox. Like, I'm not just going to put the Lord to the test, as it were. But I have to entrust my every, says, mortal breath to the Lord's care. Yeah, it's very good. I mean, that, that that typifies the sort of balanced perspective that uh, Newton tried to attain with mm -hmm. 
moral ethical issues like like that one, which was a it was a very big issue in the in the eighteenth century. Um, should we well, should you get inoculated for the for smallpox? Smallpox was the great killer of the eighteenth century. Yeah, and of course, you know, different than what we're dealing with with COVID today. But but to hear such a, a wise pastor uh, pouring in, you know, godly advice to a younger pastor and trying to envision scenarios where he could see the lawfulness of of being inoculated, but also, uh, I mean, what balance we could use today in some of our debates and talks that are going on. And uh, we won't turn this episode into a discussion of COVID and vaccines, but Newton is very relevant for our day. Yeah. Yeah. And again, his Calvinism uh, was just a part of his his fiber. I mean, the very fiber of his being. It wasn't that, like you say, the lump. It, just, mm-hmm. it, was, it was like sugar. It was like sugar in his life. Yeah, deeply yeah. evangelical. I mean... Uh, mm-hmm. the, the, the Bible commentator, Thomas Scott, who died uh, 200 years ago this year, uh, was converted through, through, uh, through Newton and, uh, mentored through his correspondence, which, uh, Scott used to, to write his, uh, semi-autobiographical, well, autobiographical account called The Force of Truth, which is a really a minor evangelical classic, just a fabulous work. Hannah Moore. The probably the most uh, prolific uh, Christian authoress uh, between 1780 and 1830s uh, was converted uh, largely through John Newton uh, in many ways. So Newton Newton was passionate about um, obviously his Calvinism, but it was also a very passionate evangelical um, who used the gift of correspondence. Uh, not only for mentoring, but also people like John Ryland, but also for for conversion uh, of individuals. And probably the most significant uh, figure that uh, Newton mentored was William Wilberforce. Mm-hmm. I think it said he would come to his door when he was uh, when God was uh, acting upon Wilberforce, and he was he was being converted. And here was John Newton, you know, giving him spiritual counsel. Yeah, the. Uh, Wilberforce said, I think Wilberforce had known Newton when he was very young. His, um, his aunt and uncle uh, knew Newton. And when God began to act on his life in the 1780s, he remembered Newton. And um, we're told that he, he, he walked around the block two or three times before he actually went up to Newton's door. Uh, in London, because he didn't want to be seen knocking at the door of an evangelical. And he wanted to make sure there was nobody who could see him. He was a member of parliament at the time. And, it's like Nicodemus. Yeah, exactly. And uh, thank God it was it was John, uh, John Newton he went to ask, because he was convinced that God was taking him out of politics. He said to Newton, uh, you know, I really think i got to leave this, 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 this fear, this fear, sphere <laughs> sphere mm-hmm. because it's just a it, it's not it's not conducive to to spirituality um if he had told that to john wesley wesley probably said yeah get out uh you know wesley wesley didn't hold very high view of the possibility of being a christian politician um yeah. but newton said it could be that god has placed you there for the good of the nation and wise counsel wise yeah. counsel again and 
Newton, Newton was his spiritual director. We, we don't use that term in evangelical circles, but Newton was the, was the man that God used to, to pray, for, pray for Wilberforce, to give him fortitude, uh, to give him grace, to give him staying power, to give him perseverance, and just again, pour into his life wise counsel. Well, Michael, we should uh, pivot as we often do on this program and talk about uh, our subject for today. And as we think about Newton for today, I, I, I thought I'd ask, has letter writing, has the new letter writing in our day become texting? In other words, is, is this kind of correspondence, is this kind of deliberate, thoughtful, wise, godly letter writing a lost art never to be recovered? Or is there something we can we can do today to mimic it and, and embrace it. <clears throat> well, I, I certainly hope as a historian that somebody is recording the, the, the correspondence, be it digital, be it written in uh, print between Christians and others, uh, because otherwise we're going to lose an enormous amount of insight uh, into uh, various figures. I mean, to be able to construct uh, as a historian, the world of the past, you need the ability to craft the narrative, but you also need that ability to answer the question, why did people do what they did? In other words, you have to have psychological insight and letters give that. And if we don't have the letters, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I mean, so much of the 18th century revival is being able to be reconstructed because of the correspondence of Wilberforce or Wesley or Whitfield or Newton. Um, I have no idea whether people are writing these sorts of letters to each other through email. Um, I mean, we're told once it's in email, it's in the cybersphere, it, it never disappears. But right. you and both you and I know that, you, you know, you, you get websites within, you know, a few years, they're gone. And, it can be. Yep. And how, how do you access that stuff? Who's keeping that mm -hmm. stuff? Uh, it's in the cloud. It's in the cloud. Yeah. Well, great. You know, like <laughs> who's who's I know. who's preserving the stuff in the cl cloud? Will there be yeah. will there be machines able to access it? I mean, you don't need a machine to read Newton's letters. You just need two eyes, and it's in an archive. Right? That's right. You know. My concern, though, Michael, isn't just the tech side. Can we preserve it? I'm wondering if anybody's creating it. Is anybody writing this kind of correspondence? Let's just hope there is. I mean, I you may have, you may have read what is it, David Gordon, Why Johnny Can't Preach, and now I know that's kind of in my world as I te teach preaching. But back in two thousand nine, he came out with this book where he said his thesis is Johnny can't preach because Johnny can't read and write. <laughs> <laughs> and so he goes on to say, and he talks about letter writing and talks about how we're really? just not doing it anymore. And even brings up the, a pen and paper. So it's a very practical book. It's not heavy lifting as far as uh, an overly academic book. But he's saying uh, we, we don't sit down and write out sentences anymore. And in computer writing, you can just hit delete. It's too easy. But if you have to sit down, he makes much of a pen and paper in saying you have to be more thoughtful as you, before you write a sentence because it's not as easy to delete. And He's just concerned that as he relates it to preaching, uh, he was a, a, a media ecologist at a, at a Grove, Grove City College. Um, but he's saying we, we can't preach because we can't read and write. And he looks at 
things like letter writing as a lost art. Now, he doesn't say it can't be recovered, but he's not overly optimistic that a new generation of pastors are taking up the pen. So, mm, okay. So, as historians, let, let's point to Newton as one who could could chasten and encourage us, maybe. Yeah, we, we, need, we need to use Newton then as an example as to why this is so important. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a second reason, and you, you've, you've alluded to this already, is Newton, I think, is very important because he, he typifies how, how the church has flourished when older men, and we could include older women, pour their lives into younger men mm-hmm. and younger women, respectively. Yeah. It's so obvious in, in his life. And just think of a John Ryland Jr. or uh, the many others he corresponded with. You mentioned Wilberforce. I mean, the whole course of history uh, in many ways was changed, not just by his correspondence, but in a lot of ways because of it. Uh, and we, we can learn from that. I mean, the opportunities for, let's call it what it is, discipleship, yep. spiritual nurture, what did you call it? Spiritual direction. He was a spiritual yep. director. Yep. Uh, pastors and Christians generally, right? Men, women. We just need to see what a valuable tool this is in our discipleship toolbox. Yeah, I mean, pastors today are called to be preach, but that's not all that they're called to be. The, the, one of the dangers, I think, of our day is that you've got these big-name preachers who are celebrities, um, mm-hmm. and uh, one of the problems with celebrityism is that younger men think, okay, that's, that is the sum and essence of being a pastor, is the preaching of the Word, for an hour on a Sunday or two hours on a Sunday. But a pastor, from the Puritan standpoint and from the tradition that uh, Newton is part of, he is called to be a spiritual guide. Some of that is done in the preaching of the Word on Sunday. Some of it is done one-on-one. Richard Baxter, the Reformed pastor, uh, during the week. And Newton did it through the medium of the pen. Uh, That's right. And... uh, that whole area, for th- it's too easy for a, a, a man to see my, the sum and substance of my pastoral ministry is the preaching of the word. The, the test of character comes in, in many ways in the one-to-one discussion. And that's where you see the wisdom of a man uh, in, mm. in some ways. Um, and I, I'm, I'm, I don't want to pit these two against each other. They're both absolutely necessary. But... Well, it's a both hand. It's a a both both hand. hand. I agree with you, Mike. Yeah, it's a both Mm -hmm. hand. And and to encourage you, I tell my students, I say we're we're pastors who preach, not preachers who happen to pastor. Good. So preaching is just one of the things we do in our shepherding role. Amen. And uh, I want to bring in letter writing and all these other means of discipleship that are that are at our disposal. So, well, Michael, we we love Newton so much. We're going to talk about him again next week. So I look forward to doing that. We'll have a guest with us. Uh, But this has been a fascinating conversation with you as always. Thank you, brother. Beads Podcast is in partnership with H&E Publishing, a reformed and Canadian publishing house seeking to spread the steadfast love and faithfulness of Christ through the publication of church history, biblical spirituality, Christian living, and theology. Join us next time as we seek to see what God has done in the history of his people.